Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I am your host, Lori LeBay, the founder of Alzheimer's Speaks and the daughter of a mother who lived with dementia for 30 years, which was pretty life-changing and is why Alzheimer's Speaks exists today. We are about raising everyone's voice at all corners of the planet uh, because we think the only way that we are going to win this battle against dementia is by doing it together. And so... Today, we're going to have a really interesting show. Um, It's going to be one show, but two doctors. And we are, before I jump into introducing uh, you uh, to our guest today, I always like to give a shout out to, of course, our audience. You guys are so special. Your likes, your clicks, and your shares have really changed, um, you know, our footprint in the world here and have have spread the knowledge of our work. And so for that, I can't thank you enough. And I always like to encourage our our, uh, listeners to also be our guests because everybody has a stake in this disease and your story can help somebody else's. If you are personally touched and diagnosed, caring for a family member, or um, maybe you're a business professional who has come up with a service product or tool, Maybe you're a researcher. Maybe you're an advocate. It doesn't make any difference. All voices are equal here, and we would love to. We would love to hear what it is you are doing and what you are up to. And so please continue with those likes, clicks, and shares. If you have any questions today, too, you can always call in at 323-870-4602. That's 323-870-4602. And people are always asking me, where am I going to be? And so I do a lot of speaking and training. March 11th and 12th, I'm going to be out in New Jersey with um, Artist Senior Living of Eaton. And then March 16th, I will be in White Bear Lake, Minnesota with the waters of White Bear Lake. And then I go back out east March 31st and April 1st. I'll be out in Pennsylvania with Artist Senior Living of Yardley. And then April 2nd, I come back to Minnesota in Winona, and I'm going to be part of a week-long educational program they are doing down there. Uh, We're going to be doing a screen of the timeless love. You can find more information on alzheimerspeaks.com. So feel free to uh, go there and check that out. I also want to give a shout out to Keith Gallus. He has... uh, you know, written the book, Parental Dementia, which is a guide through all those difficult questions. And he was an executive director, has been an executive director for 20 years, helping families. So he knows what all the questions we have are. And so he's broken down every chapter of the book and uh, designated it to a particular question. You can actually get uh, a discount if you go to his website, parentaldementia.com, and just put in the code Lori, L-O-R-I, and you'll save $5.99. Or you can always get it through Amazon, uh, Walmart, Barnes & Noble, and it is now an ebook as well. And don't forget about the memory cafes. There are over 900 of them now in the United States. And Dave has put a phenomenal list together. You go to MemoryCafeDirectory.com, MemoryCafeDirectory.com, and you can find one near you, or maybe you have one and you want to get listed. We would love to uh, to have you work either way with that. Uh, the more, the better. Um, two more things I want to give a shout out to is the University of Minnesota uh, Center for Magnetic um, Resonant Research is looking for volunteers for brain imaging. Uh, they're doing a study. You have to be between 60 and 89 in good health and no diagnosis um, of neurological or major psychiatric uh, disorders. You can get more information by going to 612 Six two five three two four six. That's six one two six two five three two four six. 
And last, I just want to give a shout out to our friend, Teresa Berry Tanner, who is uh, putting together a film called Determine. And it's a documentary film that follows uh, three families around. And it's going to be in the Wisconsin Film Festival in Madison, Wisconsin. And they would love uh, to be a supporter of that. And to do that, you just go to this website, documentaries.org forward slash I, or I'm sorry, forward slash will dash I dash B B E dash next documentaries.org forward slash will dash I dash B dash next. And uh, it's a, it's a fascinating film. I've, I've seen portions of it and um, I think it's going to help a lot of families. So let's uh, let's talk with our guest today. We are just so honored to have Dr. Ronald C. Peterson with us. And um, for those of you that don't know him, I'm kind of shocked because he is known all around the world. Uh, he um, focuses on investigations of cognition of normal aging, mild cognitive impairment, and dementia. And he and his colleagues evaluate cognitive changes in normal aging, as well as a variety of disorders involving impairment in cognition, like Alzheimer's disease or FTD or Lewy body and and so many others. Uh, Dr. Peterson directs the Mayo Clinic Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and also the Mayo Clinic Study of Aging, both which involve the study and characterization of aging individuals over time with an emphasis on um, neuroimaging and biomarkers. So welcome, Dr. Peterson. How are you doing today? Just fine, Lori. Thanks very much for having me. Well, I'm excited to have you uh, on the show. Like I said, you are so renowned in, in doing so many things. Um, one of the things I didn't mention was just some of the professional titles you have, like you're a member. World, uh, uh, World Dementia Council. Um, you are the chair of the Advisory Council on Alzheimer's Research and Care and Services for the National Alzheimer's uh, Project Act, known as NAPA. And you've been in that role since uh, 2011, which is just uh, doing fascinating things all around the country. You're, you've been on the board of directors for the Alzheimer's Association since 2008, and the list goes on with the awards and board that you have written. So like I said, I'm very excited to have you with us. I'd like to ask you one first question I ask every every um, guest, and that is, have you been personally touched within your own family or circle of friends by dementia? I, I did have a, a grandmother on my mother's side who lived into her 90s but became uh, quite impaired later in life, so certainly have, have seen that play out as well. Okay, great. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. Why don't we, because we only have a little bit of time, only a half an hour with you today, why don't we start out by having you define what the difference is between dementia and Alzheimer's disease? People are always asking that question. Sure, and it's a, it's a good question because uh, sometimes we, actually, the physicians uh, confuse the titles or sort of conflate them, so it's not always obvious. But in general, Dementia is a syndrome, meaning a collection of symptoms that people have, usually including difficulties with remembering, thinking, and they're severe enough to affect your daily activities, whatever those are. That's dementia. That's sort of the umbrella term. The next question you ask, then, is what's causing the dementia? What's causing those symptoms? And here's where Alzheimer's disease comes into play. Alzheimer's disease then refers to the specific type of dementia characterized by two abnormal proteins in the brain, one called amyloid, the other called tau, and these two proteins cause a lot of the destruction in the brain that cause the dementia. But dementia could be caused by other, uh, other uh, entities as well, such as vascular disease. You could have little strokes in the brain. You could have degeneration due to other diseases, frontotemporal dementia, Lewy body dementia. Sometimes dementias can be caused by other medical problems or medications. So dementia refers to a broad collection of entities of which Alzheimer's disease is often the most common, especially in aging. 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, so often in, in when I think my mom had the disease, well, she's been gone five years, so 35 years ago, and, you know, you didn't hear about all these other types of dementias, and you really didn't hear that much even with the word Alzheimer's back then. You know, that was just kind of creeping out there, and and then there came a while where hearing so many people, oh, they must have Alzheimer's, they must have Alzheimer's, and and people just didn't know. And I think so many still don't know that there are a lot of different sets of symptoms, just like there are with cancer. Um, somebody might fall into that umbrella category, but there's all different types, and each type has a different type of treatment um, for that. Is that How do you guys figure out who has what in terms of um, the types of of diagnoses that are out there underneath that umbrella of dementia. Sure. So, so if people have concerns, either the person, him or herself, or maybe a family member, has a concern about a person's memory and thinking, it might be wise to run this by the personal physician. And, and what the physician will do then is take a history, think, when did this come on? What are the symptoms? What kind of forgetfulness or what other symptoms do you have? When did it begin? And what's been the rate of progression? To try to get an idea if, in fact, the person fills these criteria for the dementia syndrome. Now, milder forms of dementia, or not pre-dementia, if you will, is something called mild cognitive impairment. And at this stage, people are usually forgetful, more forgetful than they used to be, and more forgetful than they ought to be, but otherwise everything else is pretty well preserved. They're still functioning, they're still driving their car, paying the bills, doing the taxes, all that looks pretty normal, but they're a bit forgetful. That's thought to be the earliest pre-dementia stage of what might ultimately progress to dementia. So when you get that kind of a history then, the doctor will say, okay, now what is it due to? What's causing it? So here you may look at the person's medical history, they have heart failure, do they have diabetes, do they have other indices of vascular disease such that they might have strokes, and you would then sometimes look at their medications to see if medications could be clouding the picture, but ultimately then you want to look at the brain, so you'll do a scan, usually an MRI scan these days, again, to see is there a stroke, a blood clot, a tumor, and we might also send the person for more detailed cognitive measures. So the physician will do in the office a brief mental status exam, you know, remember these words, what's the date, who's the president, things of that nature, to give the physician a little feel for where the person is relative to where he or she might think the person ought to be. And also do a general medical exam, general neurologic exam, to make sure there aren't signs of, say, Parkinson's disease or a stroke. And after that exam, then look at the MRI scan to see if there's something going on in the brain. May do some laboratory, some blood studies to see if there's something else affecting it. May send the person for more detailed cognitive testing to a neuropsychologist who would then give a profile and see whether the person has strengths or weaknesses in this area of thinking or that area of thinking, and is it what we would expect with regard to this person. At that point, you might stop and say, okay, now, this looks like cognitive impairment beyond what we would expect for normal aging. I've got the MRI scan. There's a cause there or maybe not a cause there. And then sit down with the person and try to sort out whether or not we need to do more detailed testing on the possible cause of the underlying pattern. Now, I don't want to get into too much detail here, but I'm, I'm describing an Alzheimer's disease scenario. If the person had, say, frontotemporal dementia, the clinical history would be different. The pattern of behavior, the cognitive testing would be different. If somebody has an underlying Lewy body disorder, dementia with Lewy bodies, again, the history might be a little bit different. The presenting symptoms, the neurologic exam might show signs of subtle Parkinsonism. So the doctor would then try to sort out these different clinical features and try to categorize what might be the underlying cause of the clinical symptoms. So at this point, there's no way to tell, totally confirm until death. Is that still accurate through autopsy of what type of dementia somebody might have? 
Not totally. That has changed over the years. So we used to say we could only call it probable Alzheimer's disease while the person was alive, and we would verify it when the person passed away, did an autopsy. You saw those two proteins in the brain. You say that's definite Alzheimer's disease. Well, over the years, the field has progressed such that we now have biomarkers that you mentioned earlier, Lori, that uh, we can see these proteins in the brain now in living people. So we can do PET scans, positron emission tomography scans that will identify the amyloid protein in the brain, the tau protein in the brain. Often these are still done in research settings rather than general clinical practice, but that is evolving. The other way we can get an index of the uh, evidence for these uh, proteins is to do a spinal tap, a lumbar puncture, because in the spinal fluid you can see these two proteins, and they are patterns in the spinal fluid that would tell you whether this is likely Alzheimer's disease. So we can be pretty certain in life that the person has features of Alzheimer's disease. Now, to make it a little more complicated, though, that often in people who are, say, in their 70s or their 80s, they may have features of Alzheimer's disease, but they may have other proteins as well, other conditions. So at times it gets complicated that there are multiple pathologic conditions contributing to the picture. But again, Alzheimer's disease is up and away the most common cause. Okay. Um, thank you for that. I remember when a lot of uh, people's diagnosis changed from Alzheimer's to mild cognitive impairment, and they all said, there's nothing mild about this. <laughs> My symptoms right. haven't changed. Right. <laughs> it's, not, like, it's not normal aging, that's for sure. I mean, mild cognitive <laughs> impairment is an abnormality. I know the word mild makes you think, ah, not too bad, but to the person, it's very real. Yep, exactly, exactly. And they want to they wanna be heard and, and felt acknowledged. Are there any new treatments for Alzheimer's disease or other types of dementias on the horizon? On the horizon, yes. Uh, in the clinic, not really, in fact. So we have about three or four symptomatic drugs that are available, but they've been available for 15, 20 years now. And by symptomatic, I mean that we use them in people with Alzheimer's disease they may stabilize the condition a bit. They may help with some of the symptoms, but ultimately the disease takes over. So they do not affect the underlying disease process. But under investigation now are a whole host of drugs and treatments and therapies that might, in fact, have an impact on the underlying disease process. These are called disease-modifying therapies, and they're meant to get at those two proteins, either the amyloid or the tau, and either stop it from building up or try to remove it from the brain. And so there are a lot of clinical trials out there. And one thing your, your listeners may be of interest is that we need people to volunteer for these clinical trials. It's the only way we're going to get therapies for Alzheimer's disease if, in fact, people volunteer. And by volunteering, you could be normal, clinically normal, but may have some of these features in your brain when people do PET scans, or you may be mildly symptomatic at the memory impairment stage or could have fully developed dementia due to Alzheimer's disease. So we're looking for people at all different stages uh, to try to assess these uh, underlying uh, uh, therapies that, that are being developed right now. Okay. I know so many people, you know, tell me they get frustrated because they apply for a trial and they go through, you know, the the due diligence of do they fit the trial and then they find out that they don't. And can you right. explain why those why those restrictions are as strict as they are? Because, you know, I, I'm sure you've got to be able to pull your data in without yep. being strict up front. I would imagine that's going to blow it apart. And, and I know that that it gets disheartening for many people. So maybe if you can explain that in, in better terms than what I just did. No, no, you did a good job, Laura. You're, you're exactly right. It's extremely frustrating for the participants who want to enroll in these trials and then are told that they're not eligible. It's frustrating for the clinicians who are running the trials as well because they're hopeful that these individuals are going to qualify. But from the clinical trials perspective, you want to be as precise as possible. So if you have a drug that is aimed at a particular target in the brain, say this amyloid protein, you want to be sure that people have the amyloid protein in the brain. 
So these days, when you enter a trial like that, you will get a PET scan to see if you have the amyloid protein in the brain. And if you don't, then you're not eligible. Or you may have a spinal tap, again, looking for evidence of this amyloid protein. We also don't want people in an Alzheimer's trial who may have, say, strokes in the brain, some of these other causes of dementia. We don't want to muddy the water with multifactorial causes of the cognitive impairment. We want to be certain or as precise as possible that the cause of the forgetfulness, say, is due to the amyloid protein if we're testing an anti-amyloid drug. So we, we have very strict requirements depending on the specific trial, and it can be frustrating, but ultimately I think if we want to draw conclusions about the efficacy of a particular therapy, we need to be as precise and definitive as possible. Okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. You know, one question I want to throw out to you, because this is something I hear from people all the time, and, and again, where I think it's hard to educate all the physicians that are out there on, on just Alzheimer's and dementia, um, but there are so many people that tend to end up getting prescribed a medication that seems to heighten symptoms, and Lewy body seems to be one of the biggest ones with hallucinations and, and delusions and things. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Because it seems to be a sure. common problem out there. No, it, it's very important, actually. So when people have these different disorders in the brain, like Lewy body dementia, they have deficits of certain neurochemicals in the brain. So these different chemical systems that exist that, that uh, allow the nerve cells to communicate with each other are all uh, mediated by these neurochemicals. Sometimes we can take drugs for other reasons, maybe our hypertension, maybe our heart, that actually have an impact on these chemicals in the brain. So inadvertently, we're knocking down a chemical that may already be deficient in the brain. For example, in dementia with Lewy bodies, one of the biggest deficiencies is a chemical called acetylcholine. Well, if the person also has, say, uh, bladder problems and is having a little bit of leakage, the urologist or the primary care physician may inadvertently give them a drug to help them with their bladder control. A side effect of this medicine is it blocks the action of this acetylcholine in the brain. So inadvertently, a bladder medicine is, in fact, having an adverse effect on the person's memory and thinking. So we need to make sure that the drugs are not interacting in a negative fashion. Also in dementia with Lewy body, sometimes people have hallucinations, delusions, and things of that nature. There's a certain class of drugs that can be quite harmful in people in treating those kinds of symptoms. And we have to be careful that we don't use drugs like Haldol, Risperdal, that, that actually block the dopamine in the brain, another neurochemical, and can really worsen the symptom rather than make it better. So uh, it's a complex interaction sometimes of medications and these neurochemical systems, and, and the doctors uh, have to be aware of all these potential problems. Is there, um, you know, because sometimes families say, well, you know, I don't want to n not follow my doctor's order, and I feel kind of disobedient if I question but, you know, I've heard, you know, that this can cause hallucinations or make things worse. Or um, how do you suggest a family handle that if they're questioning um, the medication they're on? I, I've always said that they can go to the pharmacist and have a review of all their medications. But, you know, maybe there's a better route right in the clinic. Well, I, I think it's important for the patients and families to be well informed on, on the condition, conditions. Read up on them. I mean, you can go to the Internet, and there's usually good information there, but be careful not everything is absolutely accurate on the Internet. But nevertheless, be as informed as possible, and then ask these questions. Uh, most physicians would welcome these questions and would try to enlighten, because the, the, the more enlightened the patient and the family are on these issues, the easier they are to be cared for, and the doctor has as a, uh, an easier job if, in fact, the patient and the, and the family are well informed of this. So, so I wouldn't hesitate to ask these questions at all. Is this going to make my, my loved one worse? Is this going to make the hallucinations worse? Is the Parkinsonism 
that the person is experiencing going to get worse if I give this kind of a medicine? I think these are all fair questions, and, and, and most physicians will welcome them. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you for the guidance on that. Um, I want to get to, is there anything in the field right now that's just really exciting you um, in terms of, of changes and, and opportunities that, 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 you know, may come to be here? Well, I, I think something we've already touched on a little bit is the fact that we can be much more precise with the clinical diagnosis these days. Using these biomarkers, be they imaging tests, be they spinal fluid tests, and, a, and really an exciting area that's evolving is the possibility that blood tests may enlighten us on what's going on in the brain. So I think the ability of us to be much more specific with regard to the underlying cause of a set of symptoms is, is very encouraging because as we get further down the road in the development of therapeutics, drugs, whatever, I think that the more precise we are with regard to the clinical diagnosis and the treatments that might be appropriate for that particular uh, protein, say, in the brain, the better off we'll be. And I, I think, and we've had a lot of challenges in the therapeutic field in recent years, but I, I still remain hopeful that we're on the cusp of finding some therapy that's actually going to have an impact on these proteins. And, and I've been focusing a lot on the brain and chemicals in the brain, proteins in the brain, and drugs and things of that nature. I must say, though, that non-pharmacologic therapies, lifestyle modifications, also have an impact on, on these factors and the person's life, maybe the progression of some of these underlying disorders. I'm not saying prevent them as such, but certainly can modify them. And I know in the second half of the program, Dr. Harmon's going to expand upon these. So I think this is a complementary approach, developing drugs and therapeutics and lifestyle modifications to maximize a person's uh, quality of life. Yeah, I had the, the research lead on for the finger study a while back, and it was just, it's so fascinating, and I think it uh, can give people some hope in terms of something that they can control themselves to when you've got Absolutely. such an unknown. Yeah. I think that that's always yeah, I a, sometimes, a Laurie, I sometimes say that, uh, um, you know, aging need not be a passive process. That is, we can influence our aging. We can do things with our own lifestyle modifications, so we don't just have to sit back and watch that uh, hair turn gray. <laughs> Wonderful. Now, you had mentioned to me offline about uh, NIH is having a, a care and services summit. Can you talk a little bit more about that quickly? Yes, yes. Thank you. Um, this is uh, free of charge, but the National Institutes of Health is sponsoring a care and services summit in Bethesda, uh, the NIH campus on March 24 and 25, and uh, the the program will be streamed live, so you can see it on a webcast. And I would just say Google NIH Care and Services Summit, and you'll get all the directions you need how to contact uh, to get go online and follow the program or attend the program free of charge in uh, in Bethesda on March uh, 24 and 25. So that's for care and services, and there will be people there who are experts in caring for individuals. There will be persons with the disorders, and there will be a whole host of other individuals who will be uh, speaking and interacting with the audience on these uh, topics. Wonderful. And then I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about, you had mentioned that there's such a need for trials uh, for people to get involved. Where do you recommend they go for that? Uh, two good sources. One is clinicaltrials.gov. That's where all the trials in the country must be registered. So online, again, www.clinicaltrials.gov. And the, another reliable source is the Alzheimer's Association website, alz.org, and click on Trial Match. That will be a site, a link that will get you to uh, available trials that are around. They will ask you a bunch of personal information, what your the diagnosis is, et cetera, and then hook you up with trials that are in your area or anywhere in the country. So clinicaltrials.gov on uh, alz.org. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today, Dr. Peterson. We wish you nothing but the best and hope you'll, you'll come back and join us another time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Lori.
Thank you. Um, up next, we are going to be talking with uh, Dr. Thomas Harmon, and uh, he is a family physician at the Rochester Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where he's been. He's also been on the staff of the Mayo Clinic uh, from '75 through 2008. Um, for a portion of that time, he was the chair of the Department of Family Medicine as well. His family and personal health experiences have resulted in an interest. Uh, for him personally in lifestyle medicine, which is something that Dr. Peterson just mentioned, and um, he really feels is a key to improving health. So we're going to focus on that area with Dr. Harmon here. He is also a family physician of the Mayo Clinic of Rochester and the current uh, and a current physician at the uh, Rochester Clinic. So welcome, Dr. Harmon. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Um, th- thanks for for having me. Well, I'm excited to to have you with us on the show today. Um, I I want to ask first because I always ask every one of my guests if they've been personally touched by dementia. Oh yeah, yes, I, I certainly have. Um, um, my my mother uh, passed away at 82 of Alzheimer's disease, and so I experienced. What I I don't think I'm the first person to say that to to say this that with with uh, with people with, uh, with 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 loved ones that have d- d- dementia it's as if you you lose them twice when you when you when you find out about the disease and and when they and, and as they progress and then when they're finally gone so so that's touched me very d- deeply and it's uh, had a big influence um, I. Uh, if, if I may, I'll, I'll explain a little bit about um, how some of this interest uh, started. Um, sure. When I when I first moved from Indiana in 1975 to work at Mayo Clinic, uh, I was actually the first board-certified family physician to to be on the new staff of the uh, Department of Family Medicine. And at my initial physical examination, I was overweight. I had prehypertension, which meant was having systolic blood pressures that were averaging in the 130s. My cholesterol, like most Americans, was up, and so and my blood glucose was 100, which basically meant that even then I was pre-diabetic. And over the course of the next two decades, all these tests uh, gradually worsened. Uh, I did begin uh, hypertension medications and did have satisfactory control of, of my blood pressure, but that's not actually as important as I've learned as actually improving the risk factors responsible for it. Because even even though uh, I take a blood pressure medication, uh, I still have a risk for uh, cardiovascular disease and stroke that if I could get rid of it through uh, uh, lifestyle means, I, that would mean I had actually treated the program. By... Uh, by uh, the summer of 2007, you know, fast forward a bunch of years, I finally got to a weight of 220 pounds, and I'm only five foot eight. Um, but that meant I had a BMI of 31, which made me officially obese. Um, my fasting blood sugars had finally had, had drifted upwards to 120, just five points short of being diabetic. And at that time, I ran into or discovered a uh, Harvard Medical School conference that's called Healthy Kitchens, uh, Healthy Lives, Caring for Patients and Ourselves. And it actually continues to be an annual meeting that uh, people should consider uh, going to. In all my previous training and professional experiences, I had never encountered the ideas and concept that that uh, conference uh, presented, Uh, Healthy Nutrition. Uh, was barely mentioned in medical school for me or re- residency. The, the meeting emphasized uh, the importance of a whole food, plant dominant diet for both longevity and the chronic and chronic disease, disease prevention. I mean, we kind of gave lip service to that in our training, but uh, I think very few people actually think it's possible. It was also co-hosted by the Culinary Institute of America. Uh, uh, so there were medical lectures about uh, uh, about the subjects of nutrition and, and um, me- uh, medical disease, but also there were cooking and hands-on uh, cooking skills sessions about how to prepare uh, healthy food in a delicious way. 
during that one-week conference, I ate more than I almost ever do, and yet I lost four pounds. Uh, when I was flying back with a colleague who had attended the meeting, we both vowed that we would continue to do what we had learned and to try to incorporate it into our family practice at Mayo. Uh, as a result of that, I started seeing clinical results in patients greater than I'd ever seen before. So I, re I recognized the real power of this. And I, I, I saw people's cholesterol numbers go to uh, normal within three to four weeks. For myself, my, uh, I, I didn't totally uh, stick to it. Uh, as, as, as most people experience, you have successes and then you fall back in old behaviors. But uh, I was following a lower glycemic diet and focusing mostly on that. And I did experience a 30-pound weight loss. But I was disappointed that even though uh, I had seen that, my blood sugar really uh, didn't make that much of a significant improvement. In fact, my fasting blood tests were finally getting into the 130 range, which meant I was officially diabetic. And for years, I had been uh, kidding myself about the severity or, or important, uh, importance of prediabetes because the same uh, adverse consequences of type 2 diabetes are occurring in prediabetes, but just at a slower rate. I finally learned that it was insulin resistance that is the primary cause of type 2 diabetes, and that's actually due primarily to saturated animal fats rather than uh, totally responsible uh, to sugar intake. Uh, I had moderated my uh, carbohydrates, but I had not really uh, adequately reduced the amount of animal uh, products I was eating. So at that point, I decided to go entirely uh, all in and go food, uh, whole food, uh, plant-dominant diet. And within three months, I lost an additional 35 pounds, and my fasting blood sugar, hemoglobin A1C, and fasting insulin levels all went to normal. So my diabetes was reversed. I had never seen that in clinical practice before when I followed the usual protocols that, that we do for, for diabetes. Uh, unfortunately, all during that time, while my health was improving, my mother's uh, Alzheimer's was worsening. She had finally declined to the uh, point that my father could not take care of her anymore, and she was admitted for the last three or, uh, years of her life in a, in a, in a nursing home. Uh, and as I mentioned, she passed away at 82. Now, at, the time, at that time, my knowledge of uh, dementia was typical for that time in that it just seemed in inevitable. And because of this futility, I didn't really see a reason why I should uh, check my pre uh, genetic predisposition because uh, it would be kind of discouraging to know what, what your future might be if it, if it looks pretty gloomy. Uh, but I learned about Dr. Dale Bredesen's research about uh, uh, D dementia, uh, uh, who was working at the UCLA Medical School. And he is, uh, was publishing or writing that the risk factors for Alzheimer's can actually be controlled or improved. Uh, if, if those can be controlled or improved, that, that the disease does not need to develop or progress if, if, if it's not advanced. If people have advanced disease, it's really too late. So I did have my own genome tested on, by 23andMe, and I found that I have a single allele for the APOE4 gene. Uh, some of you may know that the APOE gene actually is responsible for the making of a protein called APO, uh, lipoprotein E. Uh, this protein combines with uh, the fats in our body to uh, form molecules that are called lipoproteins. Now, as far as risk factor, I mean, as far as, far as risk of Alzheimer's, many of you may know that the that the population risk in general for the American public is about nine percent. Uh, I had an, inherited one copy of the ApoE4 gene from my mother, which actually puts me at about a thirty percent risk of developing it. My daughter, who is now in her uh, mid forties, actually has two copies, meaning she got one uh, from me and one from my mother. And unfortunately, that puts her at a 50 to 90% risk of Alzheimer's in her lifetime, and a, 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 a good chance that it actually could start in her early 50s. And I'd have trouble even talking about this if I didn't believe that there was some hope in, in, 
and uh, addressing or ma managing this problem. Uh, for myself, I had been noticing that my almost photographic memory wasn't as sharp as it used to be. Uh, that's one of the reasons I did so well in, in medical school and, and college and so forth. My symptoms, though, were at a level that would be classified as uh, subjective cognitive impairment, meaning uh, it, it was not likely to be able to be uh, identified or proven by uh, neuropsychiatric testing, but, but, but I could tell the difference. Uh, now, if symptoms increase, as you probably know, then that, that can reach the level of a diagnosis of, of uh, mild, of, uh, 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 eventually can, can lead to uh, Alzheimer's uh, disease. Uh, now, it turns out that the optimal nutrition is an important of, uh, of the findings of Dr. Bredesen. So uh, it was, it was uh, encouraging to me that I had already reversed my uh, uh, type 2 diabetes and that that was an important uh, step. So I'll stop with that because I've been going on for a long time for, for any questions or comments you might have. Well, I, I find it interesting, and I appreciate the fact of you, you know, sharing your personal story in terms of of where you were at, you know, with things and how things changed by following a, a plant-based diet. Um, mm -hmm. uh, one of the questions I think everyone is always interested in is, how difficult was it for you to make that change? Because I think sometimes our, people are resistant, going, oh, I don't know if I can do that. That's going to be too restrictive for me. How did you frame it and work with it? Well, I had the advantage of, of, of having experienced the, the, the meeting and, and it actually discovered that uh, that I could enjoy eat, eating the, the foods. I mean, when you're being taught by the, 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 the professional chefs who teach other other chefs how to make food in an interesting and, and uh, uh, an interesting way, that, that that's very important. The other thing is. I've found in my own clinical practice, it only it, it takes literally two or three weeks for people to notice that they have more energy, that aches and pains that they have, that many symptoms they had that they thought were aging are going away. I see patients frequently that already have discovered that, and it's thrilling for me because I don't have to take on the task of trying to convince somebody to, to, to do this. So in my own practice, I found that people just try – Try this for a few weeks; they'll, they'll, they'll see the merit. And then, when, when test results, as I said, uh, I, I've seen cholesterols go to normal within two weeks, and I had never seen that ha happen before. Uh, it's still daunting, and that people will fall off the wagon and, and relapse. But uh, uh, fortunately, uh, I, I, I see so, so much success; it, it, it doesn't. I, I don't give up hope because I frequently will see people who I may have talked with them about this two years ago and, and they had done nothing, but something changed in their life and they decided, what the heck, I'm going to try this. And that's, uh, I wish I made more money by getting people to eat more fruit and vegetables. I'd get more money if I were to take off warts all day, but I, I find it much more satisfying to help people not need as many medications. Uh-huh. Um, for when someone comes into your clinic and they're worried about uh, maybe their memory or having, you know, some symptoms of dementia might be some other things. What is your process kind of to go through for diagnosis? And, and do you, um, you know, mention uh, this this protocol um, of uh -huh. plant based eating um, as an alternative for them to, to try this lifestyle medicine? Yes, uh, uh, I, I, I can I, I can speak to that. I I think uh, one of the things that that I that I do is to um, make them acquainted with the, with the uh, with the more re recent re research, and I'll just briefly describe uh, the, the, what uh, Dr. Bredesen has identified as as some of the factors that uh, contribute or uh, that he sees in uh, patients with Alzheimer's. He, he refers to uh, about six types or subtypes of uh, Alzheimer's disease, and the, his type one he refers to as uh, inflammation, and uh, this this occurs more often in people who have one or two of the APOE4 uh, alleles, and therefore it tends to run in families. Uh, 
the the chronic inflammation can be due to uh, chronic low grade or past infections. It can be due to uh, a le- le- leaky gut type syndrome, poor diet, or other factors. And uh, the, the the diet that predisposes to type two diabetes and coronary artery disease is especially important for for these for these people. And so, so that that's why I was so pleased when I I improved mine. Now this 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 uh, particular type begins with the loss typically of the ability to store new, new information and and, and even uh, uh, even as uh, long held memories and other abilities to speak and calculate and spell and so forth the, the, those can be retained but yet, there's a subtype of this that he refers to as glycotoxicity and this is a toxicity that's related to eating uh, too much sugar uh, as many people know, sugar is probably one of the primary causes of inflammation and contributes to this particular uh, subtype of, uh, of, of Alzheimer's uh, that, that uh, Dr. Bredesen uh, considers uh, to, to exist. And, and so that, that was why it was very important for, for me to reverse my type 2, type two diabetes. Uh, fortunately, the inflammatory, uh, this inflammatory type is the type that most quickly improves with the Bredesen protocol. So people that have this, they're the ones that will actually see a difference within within a few months, whereas other people may take months, if not a year, to see a difference. The second two, uh, second type he refers to as uh, atrophic or cold, and, and that occurs more frequently in people who have one or two uh, copies of the APOE4 uh, gene also. But it typically occurs about a decade uh, later than the type 1 does. And it tends to start with an ability to form uh, new memories, uh, even as other abilities are, are kept up. Uh, it's, and it's most often uh, found to be related in Bredesen's experience to uh, hormonal um, uh, deficiencies, vitamin deficiencies, nutrient problems, or growth factor support. And uh, he's found that when, when you optimally correct those reductions, that uh, people will begin to improve. Uh, the but the but the, the improvement is slower than the inflammatory type. The third type he refers to as uh, toxicity, and uh, these people actually usually do not have a copy of the APOE4 gene or allele, and it typically do, uh, Alzheimer's t- doesn't typically run in their families. And this toxic subtype strikes at a younger age, though, and it has uh, symptoms that often begin in someone's late 40s, early 50s, and it's uh, often really, uh, after, a, uh, after a great stress. And rather than beginning with memory loss, it tends to uh, start affecting cognitive problems like numbers or speech organization. Uh, this type of uh, loss uh, has, uh, is not only of uh, recent memories, but it can even be old memories. And uh, this includes memories about how to do procedures like that are complex, like playing bridge, or it could be as simple as having difficulty speaking. And, and some have trouble with math or calculating, and others with uh, word finding and spelling and reading. And it turns out, uh, and also uh, more likely to have, have de- de- depression problems, it turns out that uh, that that explains, uh, in a little bit I'll explain uh, that my test findings uh, that show that I have high levels of uh, mercury explains why I've noticed that my principal symptoms have been uh, problems with finding the right words, the uh, spelling. Uh, I used to be a great speller, not so much anymore, and it, it's 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 uh, it apparently is related to that. Uh, my my uh, uh, the the tests that uh, Dr. Bredesen recommends for toxicity include he- heavy metals and testing for uh, some chronic infections as well as things like my- my- mycotoxins. Uh, it turns out that my mercury level was uh, higher than than optimal, and well, there is no optimal mercury level, but it was higher than usual, and. Uh, um, the type of mercury that was in my system is the organic form, which tends to come from the ocean-going top-end predators. Uh, 
uh, and so for me that means I don't get to enjoy tuna as often as I used to. Um, now there's a lot of controversy about this because mainstream science uh, holds the toxic chemicals and heavy metals aren't really a cause of Alzheimer's disease. And that means that uh, uh, screening uh, for that is not usually done for most people that are having an evaluation. And the, the last two types are one is uh, due to vascular problems like strokes and so forth. My, my mother had uh, two or three small strokes and uh, contributed to her developing Alzheimer's. And the final type is uh, brain trauma. So people, that's why concussions, brain injuries are so important and, and, and help lead to dementia. So that's another long-winded explanation, but basically I, 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 I tell people that the, these are the, these, these, this is what we've learned are the, are, the, are the things that contribute to Alzheimer's and that by doing appropriate testing that, that we, can, we, can discover, we can discover, well, which, which of the risk factors do we have and which ones are already taken care of. Um, and uh, if, if we want, we can get into further about how, how that can be done either through our office or through doc, uh, Dr. Bredesen's own, own program or whatever. Uh, so, again, kind of a long-winded explanation, but I thought it would be important. Okay. Well, thank you. I've got somebody on the line, and I'm just going to check and see if they have a question or a comment. A uh, person okay. from a 2968 number, 2968, uh, did you have a question or a comment? Hello? Hello. Uh, did you have a question or a comment? Um, I was just listening right now. I'm just listening. I was really interested because um, I have a parent that is that has um, – dementia vascular dementia and it's just been a sad sad thing to see it happening and then not only that we have my mother who is uh, um, mentally ill and may have form of dementia as well so it's really difficult to navigate through all these options yep yeah i'll, I'll, I'll make a comment especially about vascular d- dementia uh, vascular dementia is due to lifestyle things such as hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, and so forth. And so, so the key to uh, prevent—I mean, once you have the vascular disease, it's too late. But, but that's why it's so important for the lifestyle techniques that we can use, where, where you can actually reverse the type two diabetes as long as you continue to, to eat properly, do the good levels of exercise, and so forth. And so that, that's where that's where I'm frustrated when, when some people say there's really nothing you can do to prevent this, that, that Alzheimer's is is uh, inevitable. Uh, that's that's really tragic, and we, we need to uh, give hope to people where there really is hope. Yeah, I I know the finger study goes into pretty in depth too. I don't know if you if you've looked into that, um, but I no, think not, you I for. Yeah, I thank you for for calling in um, and sharing that with our audience. Now, one thing I want to mention before we run out of time, too, um, Dr. Harmon, is you are going to be involved with a lifestyle medicine symposium that's taking place um, coming up fairly soon down in Rochester, Minnesota, uh, March 19th through the 21st. And do you want to talk a little bit about about that? Uh, yes, uh, this will be our fourth year for this. Um, uh, when, when I came to Rochester Clinic uh, eight years or so ago, I had an interest in lifestyle medicine, and it seemed to be somehow contagious. The the uh, people in our organization, our, the, the owners of the clinic, uh, became interested. In fact, they even they even even more excited about it than than. Than, than than I than I was at the time, uh, and they they came up with the idea of having a symposium in which we would uh, present topical in, information, both with uh, local uh, providers, but we we uh, invited uh, really big name and and big names in the uh, area of lifestyle medicine to come and speak. Our uh, our first uh, our first participant was Dr. Hans Deal, uh, of uh, who 
was on the faculty at Loma Linda Medical School. He uh, had uh, 30 some years ago developed the CHIP uh, CHIP program, which stands for the Complete Health Improvement Improvement Program, uh, that basically helps people uh, helps people make these difficult lifestyle changes uh, that, that haven't been able to do it on their own or with, on, on, uh, through reading and so forth. Uh, and he was very inspiring, and uh, and it was, uh, it was uh it was it was such a great experience that we've continued to have meetings every every year. This year we're bringing in uh, one of the one of the real uh, so-called rock stars of lifestyle medicine, Dr. M- Michael Greger, who uh, hosts uh, NutritionFacts.org. Uh, when he speaks at medical meetings, he gets a huge a huge audience because he's not only informative, he's also a great humorist. Um, and, uh, uh, and so uh, he, he's, he's written a book called, um, uh, oh, here goes my Alzheimer's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'll, 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 uh, see, I told you I have trouble with word finding, but anyway, Dr. Gregor is coming. And uh, uh, the other person that's coming this year is also uh, Dr. Dr. Uh, Neil um, uh, Nedley, uh, he he has a special expertise in, in depression and other mental health disorders, and that that does re- relate to the, the, the caller's question about mental health. We have some other uh, big name uh, people that that uh, uh, will just be a, I think our, our best session ever. Wonderful. Well, I. I know it looks like a fascinating um, conference. In the last couple of years, I've tried to make it, and I'm always doing something else. I'm always booked uh, someone else uh, speaking. And this is um, also sponsored by the Lotus Health Foundation and the Rogers Clinic. And people can call and get more information on this symposium if they're interested in going to it, uh, 507-218-3095. That's 507 507- Two one eight three zero nine five, and I did put a link down for the um, Lotus Health Foundation um, organization, the schedule um, for the symposium too. So you can find that on the radio page, or if you're on the blog, uh, for more details on all the different uh, breakout sessions and things that they're having. I think it's going to be quite, quite fascinating, and. Um, as for you, uh, uh, Dr. Harmon, we only have like a, a minute and a half here left. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to double check with you and see if there was anything else that you wanted to um, point out to our our audience um, in terms of this conversation. Well, I think the, uh, I, we, we do offer uh, uh, the medicine pro- protocol through our practice. Um, uh, because of my own personal experience with the protocol, I, I decided to actually become a Bredesen pro- protocol provider. Uh, I was the training for that actually surprisingly at 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 the Cleveland Clinic. So there are some major institutions that are uh, su- supporting this kind of activity. Um, but, but people can also go to the Bredesen website itself for help and information. And so uh, we, we can we, I, I can see people in the office. We also do uh, uh, visits via t- uh, t- telemedicine, and we provide coaching, which is very important for being people uh, helping people uh, remain steadfast in their in their in their commitment to to improve with this protocol. Um, so uh, there's lots of avenues to to it. Uh, I'm just pleased when when anyone uh, gets involved with this in any way that they do it, because uh, I think the for 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 most or many uh, you'll uh, they will see very very gratifying changes. And I, I want to thank you very much again for for inviting me to speak. Well, I, I this was a great conversation. Um, I loved having uh, Dr. Peterson on uh, prior. We talked, uh, you know, a little different angle, and then to be able to dive into the lifestyle medicine, I, I think is so important. And again, people check out the finger study. Just Google it. Uh, it talks about uh, diet, exercise, sleep, all kinds of things that we can control ourselves. And to get a hold of Dr. Harmon, uh, you can call five zero seven. 
3095. That's 507-218-395. Or you can email uh, him at health at rochesterclinic.com, health at rochesterclinic.com. And again, don't check out that uh, symposium and gala for the life uh, lifestyle medicine. And um, we will catch you next week. Thanks, everybody. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.